Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians 6, I'll be reading verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace. And mercy be upon them and upon the true and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as sinners with absolutely nothing but to plead the blood of Christ. So forgive us of our arrogance, of our pride. And how we even try to disguise it and pervert holy things for an agenda of self. But Father, bring all of our boasting to nothing this morning that glory may abound to the name of Christ. In his name we ask this, amen. As an introduction to Paul's conclusion, I think we do well to recall Paul's introduction to the letter. To grasp what's happening in Galatians, let's sample a representative uh, some, some representative examples of the way Paul typically opens his letters. So Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Colossians 1, 1 and 2. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers at Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. All very crisp, concise, maybe an added element here and there, but basically you have author, audience, blessing. Now, Galatians 1, 1 through 5, you notice the difference just by the number of verses referenced. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All the same elements, but do you not sense just not only the elaboration, but with that the intensity, the zeal that's behind this. And instead of following this opening greeting as he typically does with a warm section of thanksgiving, Paul unleashes a statement of astonishment and anathema. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. This intensity is sustained throughout the letter. And if anything, as we come to the conclusion, it continues to be amplified. D.A. Carson, who taught in seminaries for over 40 years, has wrote in the past, if I've learned anything in 35 to 40 years of teaching, it is that students don't learn everything I teach them. What they learn is what I'm most excited about. The kinds of things I emphasize again and again and again and again. That had better be the gospel. As we come to this letter as a whole and and especially this conclusion, there's no mistaking what Paul is most passionate about. We might categorize them as four things, though they're all intricately related, so much so that you can't separate them. Justification, the gospel, the cross of Christ, and the glory of God. While this is in harmony with Paul's emphasis everywhere that he writes, nowhere do you see it more loudly than in Galatians, and nowhere perhaps more amplified than in this closing Paul opens with such intensity, you you don't think the crescendo could rise any higher, and yet it does. The introduction begins with this peculiar command, see with with what 
large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. What is Paul wanting to draw their attention to? Some speculate that this goes back to a statement in three, excuse me, chapter 4, 14, and 15. Whenever he's recalling that time when he was with the Galatians and he was in affliction such that he says, your sympathy, your love for me was such that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And so they connect this to Paul's thorn in the flesh that he speaks of and they speculate that that was a thorn in his eye and they say that's the reason for these large letters here. Paul could have had some malady of the eyes, that's unknown to us, but I think there's a better explanation, a clear explanation for us to see as to why Paul is writing with large letters at this point in his letter. We looked at a sampling of Paul's introductions. Let's take a sampling of his conclusions. 1 Corinthians 16, 21-23, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Those are the last sentences of 1 Corinthians. Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Again, the last sentences of that particular letter. Why does Paul tell his audience that he's writing the closing to his own letters? In Paul's letter to the Romans, we find this sentence near the end of the chapter. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. See, Paul, like many in his day, used an amanuensis. That's a secretary that would record his letter as Paul dictated it. And then, to testify that everything that was written was genuine apostolic Pauline, that the amanuensis didn't get happy with the quill, Paul would append the his signature, as it were, to the end in the form of a benediction and a greeting to his audience. Paul explains that he's doing so in 2 Thessalonians. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And once again, those are the last sentences of that particular letter. So you notice that Paul normally takes up the pen, and he does so near the very end of the letters. But here, Paul takes up the pen much earlier, and he wants to draw their attention to it, and in particular beyond that, that he's doing it with large letters. Why? Because this letter closes just as it began. The ending is emphatic. Paul is pinning the end, as it were, in all caps, bold, italics, and underlining it. Also, in this emphatic sentence, I believe that the I and the my are further emphasized. We could say that they're in red ink. See, with what, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And so Paul has in this letter contrasted his ministry, his apostleship, and his gospel, the apostolic 
authority he has. The apostolic gospel he then preaches compared to that of the false teachers, which is a perverted version, which is a non-gospel. He's, he's made that contrast already that the early part of this letter, 1, 11 through 2, 14, was dedicated to demonstrating Paul's apostolic authority before he goes into his apostolic gospel in the remainder of the letter up to the sections we've been dealing with recently where he's making application of those truths. But now, he's not going to contrast himself with them in terms of his message or his authority, but in regards to motive. So this, this I and this my prepare you for the contrast that's to come yet again. The false teachers are trying to force circumcision, verse 12. This is a shorthand for saying that they are insisting that a, a kind of law-keeping is necessary for one to stand just before God. Thus, the reason for Paul's argument in 3.11, that it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, Galatians 3.11. The reason why the false teachers are trying to force circumcision isn't because they are sincerely ignorant, that they, they think this is actually necessary. The false teachers have two motives. First, verse 12, they want to make a good showing in the flesh, or put differently, verse 13, they wish to boast in their flesh. Second, they wish to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ, verse 12. They are wanting to circumcise others for their own skin. Both to promote it and protect it. The cross of Christ nullifies pride and draws persecution. It draws persecution because it nullifies pride. And thus, they want nothing to do with it. 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why? He explains. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is folly to this world because it brings to nothing everything that the world loves. In John 12, we're told that many authorities believed in Christ, but they didn't want to say anything about that because the, they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. If identifying with Jesus means denial of all other boasting that reflects on self, Jesus will not be embraced by this world. He's hated. 
These Judaizers want to make a good showing in the flesh. And the good showing they want to make is a boasting in their flesh. That's the Galatian Gentiles that they would have circumcised. This is a kind of perverted twist on that bridal price that Saul mischievously demanded from David of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. They want to be able to boast before God, not only that they stand righteous, oh, Jesus helped, but they stand righteous in part because of their own law keeping. They want to be able to boast not only that they stand righteous before God because of their law keeping, but that others stand righteous before God because of their law keeping. Aren't you glad that the modern church is innocent of such tally-keeping arrogance and methods? In case you're missing it, as Paul wanted to draw attention to his large handwriting, let me draw attention to the smirk and the sarcasm with which I'm attempting to say that. When you baptize a goat, excuse me, let me rephrase that. When you dunk a goat, you don't get a sheep. You get a wet goat. Putting another mark on the tally board doesn't make the church bigger. It makes it stink. At least the Judaizers were perverting God's law. Evangelicals, We just make it up. Partake of the holy sacrament of saying this prayer after me. Did you do that? Then you're saved. Like the Pharisees, the Judaizers were perverting God's law for the unlawful end of self-glory. The basis for this accusation is their obvious hypocrisy, verse 13. Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Their concern clearly is not God's law. That's made evident by their hypocrisy. They don't keep it. Paul's demonstrated that if you accept circumcision, you need to go the whole way with the law. Galatians 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Why is that? Back up to 3.10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. The Judaizers do not take God seriously. They don't take His law seriously. And that's evident because they don't go where the law is meant to drive them, and that's to Christ as their only hope, their only glory, their only boast. They're not after God's glory. They're after man's. They're like those that Jesus warned against, saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. 
for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The Judaizers' hypocrisy like that of the Pharisees is doubly damning. And not only damns themselves, it damns others. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Because they're not trusting in the one God has provided. They're trusting in all your methodologies and your law keeping and everything you're laying out in front of them. And now they think they're saved. All their sham righteousness is a thin veneer covering a grave full of putrid rot and death. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. All your law keeping is lawless because it has no reference unto God. It's all about Self, thus the hypocrisy. In contrast to the false teacher's motive of self-glory, you have Paul's exclusive boast in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exclusive boast in two ways. One, it's Paul's only boast. And second... It's only Paul's boast and the saints. No one else is boasting in this. I want to draw attention to how jolting, how how unnatural a statement like this would have been in the ancient world. Even saying something like, far be it from me to boast except in lynching, doesn't even get close, I think. So the kind of shock that this would have. Crucifixion was more than a means of execution. It was meant to shame and ridicule and mock those who would dare defy Rome. It was so, so horrendous, even by Roman standards, that you couldn't do it to another Roman except for the most severe kind of treason. While the Romans saw it as a horrid shame upon the one being crucified, for the Jew, the one hanging on the cross was cursed of God. 
And so the heresy of a Baptist minister like Steve Chalk, who says that the substitutionary atoning death of our Lord, that that doctrine is a form of cosmic child abuse, that heresy can cause us to open our eyes a bit to see what we are too quick to pass over quite often. And that is the horror, the shock of the cross. Lloyd-Jones captures the danger I'm fearful of. But perhaps the people who find the cross most offensive of all are those who on the surface seem to praise it most of all. I am thinking of the people who tell us that the cross is a very beautiful thing. They preach a lot about the cross, yes, but they believe it as something that is beautiful, so touching, so affecting, so moving. And yet I would say that they, of all people, are the ones who feel the offense of the cross most of all. In fact, they feel it so much that they have, to, they have got to turn it into something that it was never meant to be. They find it so offensive in its stark reality that they philosophize it into the most beautiful thing, a kind of aesthetic enactment. And so they sentimentalize the cross and talk about it with great pathos. These, of all people, are the ones who feel the offense of the cross. Yes, the cross is infinitely glorious. And it is just as horrendous. R.C. Sproul was once invited by a Quaker community to lecture on the curse, well, to lecture on the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. And as he's doing that, he's picking up on the curse motif of the Scriptures and tracing it, its development through the text. And as he's coming to the, the fulfillment of that curse motif, That our Lord was cursed of God on the cross. Someone yelled, that's primitive and obscene. Taken aback, having heard perfectly well what he said, he asked, what did you say? With anger, he repeated, that's primitive and obscene. Dr. Sproul writes, At that point, I had recovered from my surprise, and I told the man I actually liked his choice of adjectives. It is primitive for a blood sacrifice to be made to satisfy the justice of a transcendent and holy God, but sin is a primitive thing that is basic to our human existence. So God chose to communicate His love, mercy, and redemption to us through this primitive work. And the cross is an obscenity because all of the corporate sin of God's people was laid on Christ. The cross was the ugliest, most obscene thing in the history of the world. So I thank the man for his observation. But my point is that the man was extremely hostile to the whole idea of the atonement. The cross, just as an instrument of execution, the cross... Is an unparalleled 
implement of shame and horror. And yet, at the cross of Christ, they pale in comparison to the unseen depths of woe endured by our Lord. As He was crushed by His almighty Father's hand for our transgression. The eternity of hell was experienced in a moment of time. You add to this the shame of the cross, rightly so, deservedly so, as it reflects on all humanity and their attitude toward their Creator. They would have Him crucified, mocked, and ridiculed. And Paul says, not only do I boast in that, he says, that's my only boast. How is it that Paul glories in Christ's cross? The cross is the end of human boasting. What's Paul doing boasting in the cross of Christ? Not as something done by Paul. But as something not, and, and not even as something simply done for Paul. That's true. But also because it was something done to Paul. By which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. My relationship to this world was terminated at the cross. We are dead to each other. We no longer relate to one another. In 2.20, Paul told us he was crucified with Christ. Jesus, as our federal head, went to the cross to be cursed for our sins. As our representative, he stood in our place to be damned. As a substitute, he was a sacrifice for our sins. His suffering was vicariously done on the behalf of those given to him by his Father. Whenever he makes atonement for sin, he acts in union with his people so that when he dies, they die. When he rises, they rise. And what the Spirit of God does is in the Father's time apply what Jesus purchased for His own. Such that that representative union becomes a real living thing in time. The old man dead, the new man risen. Paul is no longer part of this rebellious, wicked, wretched, damned world that is passing away. Instead, he belongs to the age to come, to the world made new, to the kingdom of God that's breaking into the present and that will never fade. The cross 
is his boast because, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but only a new creation. A new creation that comes about because of union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Because all who are in union with Christ in his death are also in union with him in his bursting forth from the grave. We can be assured of the resurrection of our bodies because we have already experienced the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. We were dead in our transgressions and sins and He made us alive together with Christ. Circumcision was previously a sign of belonging to the covenant people of God. But the Judaizers have missed the shadow, excuse me, missed the substance for the shadow. They have nothing of what was once signified by that sign. Now to add to the uniqueness of this letter once again, Paul concludes this letter not with a benediction, but with two benedictions that are interrupted by a request. The first benediction is strikingly stated conditionally. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. As for all who walk by this rule. What's this rule? It's the same word we get our word canon from. Has the idea of measurement. What, what is this measure? which walking according to is met with the benediction of mercy and peace. It's the rule that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only a new creation by the cross of Christ. If you walk by that rule, mercy and peace. And do you not see that this is the mirror image of that curse that Paul opened his letter with? But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If you walk by this rule, mercy, peace. If you walk by anything else, accursed. This blessing is further promised on the Israel of God. Paul is not offering an alternative means of blessedness here. That's clear by this letter. There's no other boast than Christ and His cross. He's already told us that verse 7 of chapter 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Israel of God are the elect, those whose circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but of the heart. Romans 2, 28-29, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Philippians 3, 
We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These are two ways of identifying the same people. Paul now requests that he be troubled no more by those who profess Christ. And the reason is, he bears on his body the mark of Jesus. That is not circumcision. That is the marks that he has received because of being persecuted for the cross of Christ. To which, the Galatians were privy to witness some of those marks being made. Because in Lystra, which was part of Galatia, he was stoned. And then finally, the more typical, concise benediction at the close. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And once again, he calls them brothers. We've seen this pattern in the letter, have we not? If the first benediction expresses his concern... Grace and peace be upon those who walk by this rule. The first benediction expresses his concern. The second one expresses his hope. That they're brothers. As we exit this blessed letter, soon to study Jeremiah, I want to compare this passage with one we find there. Jeremiah 9.23-24 Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. All human boasting means nothing. What matters is if one knows the true and living triune God. And the only way He is known is by the cross of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We can only know Yahweh in Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. At the cross, we see His covenant love, His steadfast love, and His justice and righteousness. Indeed, you see the depths of His love in the lengths He was going to, to redeem His own without compromising what He was redeeming them to Himself. He does not compromise His righteousness or justice. And yet, He loves so much that He would bear the penalty of all our lawlessness in the person of His Son. To know God is to know Him in Christ. 
It's in Christ that you know the depths of His covenant love and justice and righteousness to their full extent. If you try to know God any other way, you will only know His wrath. The harmony between these passages is further amplified in Jeremiah going on to say, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will, um, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all those who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations, you notice Judah was included with them, and they are circumcised. He says, all these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only a new creation. A new creation that comes by the seed of Christ being sown into this earth and bursting forth with new life three days later. And so... May the cross of Christ not be the small, fine print of our lives. May it be our exclusive boast. And may it be writ large as the banner over all our living. Let's pray. Holy Father, glory be to Christ and Christ alone. His name be exalted above every other. And may all of our boasting, glorying, enjoying of any other thing that is true and good and beautiful be towards the end and aim and exaltation of Christ and His cross. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.